Do take your Bibles and turn with me to the passage we had read to us this evening in Mark chapter 10. Uh, The reading this evening really marks uh, a major turning point in the life of our Lord and in the story of the gospel. We've been following Jesus, uh, uh, observing his miracles, hearing his parables, feeding the 5,000, sending out the 12 apostles, taking Peter, James, and John with him up the Mount of Transfiguration. And then in descending the mountain, we've seen him as he has encountered the Pharisees and the scribes. He has foretold his death and resurrection to his immediate disciples. And... uh, has given them a demonstration of what will happen as a result of his work in the transfiguration itself. And now we find the action now begins to move up a notch. And they were on the road, it says, going up to Jerusalem. Here's the first mention of Jerusalem. This is the destiny, destination of the disciples of Jesus. The language is very vivid, very active here. There are 12 disciples, and Jesus is walking on ahead of them. There's an eyewitness observation. Jesus is on ahead of them. In Luke's gospel, we're told that Jesus resolutely set his face like a flint, an unflinching determination was upon his very countenance as he strode towards Jerusalem. He he is on a mission, and his very demeanor here indicates that the culmination of that mission, which is the cross, is now within his sight. So 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 much was his determination that the disciples were amazed. They were they were moved. They, they did not know how to deal with it. They, to some degree, there was, they, were, they were afraid. The fear was in their hearts. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for Jesus? What, what will the end result of this be? Here he is without wavering, without deviation. He is determined to go to Jerusalem. And they know, they know, that keeping Jesus' company all the way to Jerusalem will be as dangerous for them as it will be for him. And as we read this account here of Jesus walking ahead of them and them following, we have to read those words the way they would have been read by the very first Christians. Take the Christians in Rome, for example. Mark may very well have been writing in Rome when this gospel was written. And those Christians in Rome would be suffering persecution. And as, as we've come across this description of Jesus walking ahead with his frightened disciples following him, many of those early Christians would have identified with the frightened disciples who were following Jesus, not knowing but wondering and worrying what the outcome of their connection to Jesus might be. 
So it has a practical application to, to those folks who first read it as well as it does to us. He has been quite clear about his reason for going. In Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 13, uh, he says to the disciples, I must keep going, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. He's going there to die. And this subject dominates his thinking. He must go to Jerusalem, and as the great scholar C.H. Dodd put it, to go to Jerusalem was to face a violent death. And so it's that death then, the violence of that death, and Jesus' commitment to the mission to go and die for you and me, because you and I are what we are this evening, if we're Christian people at all, if we have a hope of glory, if we have eternal life, if we've been given the new birth, if we are aware of having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is only because He took that journey all the way to the cross. And so what we're having here is a prelude to the glory that the Jesus is heading towards. And so he takes them aside. He takes the twelve aside again. He tells them what he's already told them several times, and it hasn't registered. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Let me just dispel any ideas you have, guys. We are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And because they don't have the authority to kill me, they will hand me over, deliver me over to the Gentiles, to the Romans. And then he outlines what they will do to him. They will mock him, and they will spit on him. That's what the prophet Isaiah had said would happen. In Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6, I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. Or in Isaiah 53 and verse 3, despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Or in the language of the 22nd Psalm, verse 7, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads, there are to be these mockery, this spitting on him, this flogging him, the scourging of him. In Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6, I will give my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. He will be scourged, Isaiah 53 verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And he will die. As Isaiah 53 makes it very clear in verses 8 and 9. By oppression and judgment he's taken away. 
As for his generation who consider that he was cut off, that is, he was killed, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. He will be crucified, dead, and buried. That's the route that Jesus was taking for the disciples as he explains it to them. He'd already spoken to them about the betrayal that would initiate this. He'd already spoken to them about the contempt in which he would be held by his own fellow Jews. He's already now now unpacking what will happen to him at the hands of the Gentiles, the the cruel horse prey of the, the Roman soldiers. The flogging, he says. Flogging is always a a preamble for death. When the Romans flogged someone, they flogged them to kill them. It's preparation for killing them. And you see, as you read these words, you you get the sense that we're meant to, to understand that there is nothing happening to Jesus without Jesus being in control of what is happening to Jesus. As he's telling us this, we we realize that there's nothing involuntary or unforeseen about what's going to happen to Jesus. He knew that from just reading his own Bible, that he'd inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's all there in the Old Testament what was going to happen to Jesus. Jesus knew that. He knew in detail what they were going to do to him from the Bible that he by the Spirit had inspired to be written. Everything, in other words, that is going to happen to him is a result of his own free, determinate, and deliberate choice. From the beginning, before he came into the world, this is why he was going to come into the world. From all eternity, in the triune will of God, there was a determination to save fallen sinners like you and me, and this was to be the way in which they would be saved. And he adhered to the principle of the cross in obedience to his own will, the will of God. And it was because of his utter commitment to the cross He saw the cross as the the pathway to glory, the glory of the resurrection, and the glory that would come to us as his people. In the language of Hebrews 1, after he had made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So the prelude to glory is the death that he would die. And then... Almost immediately, we have this request of James and John. It's very hard to read it, really, and, and, and to take it seriously. Jesus has just said they're going to kill him. They're going to mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do something for us. For us, there's something to ask you. And Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us 
to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. I mean, can you believe it? Uh, I mean, it's, it's uh, well, I guess we might do something stupid like that as well. But it is, it sounds so stupid. It, it also sounds so authentic. It wouldn't be there in the Bible. I mean, these men, Peter, uh, James and John, rather, the sons of Zebedee, Zebedee, two of the most important disciples and apostles of the Lord Jesus. This would not be in the Bible if it hadn't really happened this way. And it's a mark of the authenticity of Scripture, but also the humility of these men that they, that they were happy for it, or maybe not happy for it, to be included for us to read forevermore in the life of the church. <clears throat> But it gives Jesus an an entree into making another reference to his death, and this time looking at it through a a different lens, that the death that he had to die was a cup that he had to drink. Look what what he says there in verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink. This drinking of the cup is an Old Testament metaphor. It's a metaphor for drinking the wrath of God, drinking the anger of God. In Isaiah 51, verse 17, you who have drunk from the hands of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the depth the bowl, the cup of staggering. It's a cup of the wrath of God. Can you drink this cup, Jesus says to them. By boldly using this metaphor, Jesus is again bringing before their eyes the the thought, Jesus is going to drink this cup of wrath not because He deserves wrath, but because those for whom He's dying deserve wrath. That's you and me. He is taking the sinner's place. He is going to take the sinner's punishment. As it says in Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He had a cup to drink. He had a baptism to endure. He goes on to say this, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with a baptism which I'm baptized? What was this baptism? Baptism means literally to be drowned in deep waters. In the ancient world, the word was sometimes used of ships that sank at sea. And the Baptists, of course, used that as an argument for total immersion. But the water symbolizes this drowning thing, this death. We're buried with Christ in baptism, into His death. Sometimes the word is used of, of the, the billows uh, uh, and, the, and the waves pounding over us with grief and anxiety and anguish. In Psalm 42, all your waves and breakers have swept over me, says the, the, the man in anguish. And Christian baptism is always unto the death of the Lord Jesus. 
It's our union with his death as well as with his life. And among other things, it's a reminder of the overwhelming current of sorrow and suffering that flowed over the Savior on the cross when he died for our sins. And what he says to them in verse 38 is that his work was his work alone. I mean, they say to him in verse 39, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism I'm baptized with, you will be baptized. In other words, you'll follow me in this route, just as the church will follow me in this route. But I, only I, can do the first drinking of the cup and the baptism that I will be baptized with. You have sin to deal with. I don't have sin to deal with. You have to face the wage of sin, which is death, because you are sinners. I will choose the way of death. I won't die because I'm a sinner. I will die because I'm dying for you and your sins. It will be his achievement alone. But here are James and John, and they want ring seats to the extravaganza of the kingdom coming in all of its splendor and glory. They've heard Jesus talk about that. They, they were up the mountain with Jesus. They saw the transfiguration, and they've gone straight from where they are to the transfiguration, and Jesus in the glory, shining like the sun in its strength, and seeing Moses and Elijah with him in glory. They want the glory. They want it now. They hope Jesus will go to Jerusalem and enter into the city and be met with triumph, be hailed as a glorious success, and that they will be part of the entourage that enjoys the welcome. The other disciples are indignant, we're told in verse 41. They're indignant when they heard what James and John had done. They got across them. They all wanted the same thing, by the way. They were just indignant that James and John had got in first with their requests. They had it registered. This is what we want, to sit at your right hand and your left. They too hoped that they would go straight from where they were to the glory of the transfiguration. And Jesus is very clear to clear up the their misunderstanding, and uh, to assert that he must be the one who suffers and dies. Now, there is a connection between the suffering of the church and the suffering of Jesus. When we were going through Revelation, we, we discovered that the church, in a sense, dies a thousand deaths over the period of church history, that at the end of history, the church will appear to have been obliterated from the face of the earth, the world will hold parties thinking that at last we have got rid of this nuisance called the Christian church. Because the way that the Christian takes is the way the master went. This is the way the master went, should not the servant tread it still. So our Lord is very careful, though, to distinguish between our experience of suffering for his sake, and his experience of suffering deliberately chosen for our sake. 
Well, the next thing he says is that his work of dying for us is an act of service. Look at those verses 44 and 45. Just before he gets there, he calls his disciples to himself there in verse 42, and he says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. These the apostles are going to be the foundation of the church. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets of the old covenant. That's the foundation on which the church is built. It's through the apostles we know about Jesus and we understand the prophets. That's why the order. And so we want to magnify these, these men. We do. We hold them up. We recognize them. We even saint them. Saint James and Saint John and Saint Paul. And those who follow these leaders of the church, people like me, people like other ministers in the church, are tempted. They're tempted to want something that they see that goes with Jesus. They're tempted to want the honor and the plaudits and the and the affection and the obedience and the following. Some people think that if you're a minister or an elder in the church, that, that's, that that is a status thing. But do you see what Jesus says about that? He says the, the rulers of the Gentiles, that is the worldly rulers, what do they do? It <laughs> doesn't matter how they got into power. Once they're in power, you can see from the swagger and the boasting and the way in which, I'm thinking of the UK at the moment, the way in which having brought in stringent rules and regulations during the lockdown for everybody in the country, they flouted it all themselves. Because there's one rule for the unclean masses and another rule for them. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over their subjects. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But I want every Christian servant here, every Christian amongst us here, including myself, <clears throat> every elder, those of you who may one day end up being in the ministry, listen, this is something you need to understand. It shall not be among you. It shall not be among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. To be an elder in the church is not to be a church boss. To be a minister in the church is not to be a church boss. It is a sphere of service. And so it says in verse 44, whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. Ready to serve others in love. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. For even the Son of Man 
came not to be served, but to serve. Now, here he uses the Son of Man imagery. You know that the Son of Man imagery comes from Daniel chapter 14 when Daniel sees that, that uh, individual who goes to the Ancient of Days, a Son of Man who goes to the Ancient of Days, who is God on his throne, as it were, and receives from God a kingdom, and all the nations of the world worship him. This heavenly Son of Man, Jesus is this heavenly Son of Man. He himself, who from all eternity is the all-glorious one, He's the one Isaiah saw in the temple when he saw the Lord high and lifted up in his glory, filling the temple. Who did Isaiah see? Ask John in chapter 12. He saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Here is the one who from all eternity is full of glory, and yet where do we find him? We find him incarnate, a little baby thing, being fed, nursed by Mary, and and carried around by Mary and and growing up in the house of Mary and Joseph. And at the end of his life, we find him nailed to a cross. The cross is an act of service. He's come to give himself, to make himself the slave of all. He came to serve, not to be served. And then we have the conclusion. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Here we come to the very heart and core of what is going on in the cross. Every word is freighted with meaning and significance for us. He's come to be, to give his life, that is to surrender his life to death. Nobody killed Jesus on the cross Jesus, you remember, dismissed his spirit. Now you would have thought that bearing our sin in his own body on the tree, that that would have killed him. That somehow or other Jesus deserved to die the way we deserve to die because the wage of sin is death. But Jesus is sinless all the way through the cross. He doesn't When it says he became sin, it means he became a sin offering on the cross. He was an offering for our sin. By being hung upon a tree, he takes the curse that goes with being hung on the tree. But being hung on the tree was not his doing. It's a law that is there in the Bible to facilitate the work of Jesus on your behalf. And in the end, Jesus chooses to die. They couldn't kill him. He chose to die for us. He came to give his life for many, for you and for me. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. That is a verb that means to loose Uh, The loosing of prisoners sometimes, when a ransom had been paid, the prisoners are are set free. The Jewish background to the word is the payment of a price. In Exodus 30, verse 12, uh, we, we read of people being released because a ransom price 
was paid. And usually, usually the ransom price is paid where there is a threat of death or people have been, been already condemned to death. A person's life is forfeit, and the ransom delivers that person from death. In fact, here's what one, the, one uh, scholar puts it like this, a ransom is not wanted at all except where life has been forfeited. And this saying sheds its light on the whole human condition. We're taken right back to the very beginning where our first parents made choices that had ramifications for the whole race. It takes us into the innermost realities of our present situation. Our lives are forfeit. We are, by nature, objects of wrath. The wages of sin is death. And that way, the wages of sin is death is a mark of the wrath of God, that holy, perfectly controlled antagonism to sin. God's perfect holiness, perfect justice. The flip side of God's love. And yet God has provided a way of deliverance for you and me. There's a ransom that's been paid. It was paid in the blood of Jesus so that you and I go free. In fact, that word for is very significant. You can glide over these little words and not pay any attention to them. The word for here is the Greek word meaning instead of, in the place of, or in exchange for. Jesus is there instead of you. Jesus is there in your place. Jesus is exchanging his life and death for your life and eternal life. I read from Isaiah 53. Earlier in verses 10 to 12 of Isaiah 53, we read this. It was the will of God to trust, to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. There's a resurrection right in there. The will of the Lord shall prosper at his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. See what? His knowledge, by his knowledge, by knowing him, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's you. That's you. Because he shall bear their iniquities. That's what Jesus has come to do. And so, though the cost cost was enormous for Jesus, it comes free at the point of delivery to you and to me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, we hear these words, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's where we are tonight. That's where you are tonight. That's our standing if we are trusting, if we are resting 
in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. It's all been accomplished by him. I want you to visualize for a moment. You're one of the disciples. You're walking along the road. There is Jesus right up front. There's a distance between the group you're with and him as he strides valiantly, defiantly, with determination to go to the cross for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the wonders of the salvation that we have in our Savior, and behind it, the amazing grace that has drawn us into fellowship with you in him. Give us joy in our hearts as we think of that this evening. In Christ's name, amen.